This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. Johns County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, take your Bibles and turn with me again to Romans chapter 8. We want to pick up where we left off last time, Romans chapter 8, and we have been looking recently at the Holy Spirit and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit here in Romans chapter 8. I want to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I've entitled these two messages, A Powerful and Very Present Ministry. A powerful and very present help, we could say, in the Holy Spirit. Picking up in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sinning His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die." But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Thus ends the reading of God's Holy Word. I want to begin with a question this morning, and the question is going to be rather straightforward, and I really want you to think about it. The question is, how can you be sure that you are saved? How can you be sure that you are saved? And put that another way, how can you be sure that you are a Christian? Well, understand this morning that Paul's approach is really a positive approach. As we've been working through the book of Romans, it's not a negative approach. Paul's been laboring to show throughout this letter that man has nothing to do with his salvation. Man has nothing to do with saving himself. God has everything to do with saving us. Paul put it this way in Romans 3.23. He says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so God must act, and indeed He has. He goes on to say that we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. The doctrine of justification teaches us that we are declared righteous when we believe in Jesus Christ and we trust that His death upon the cross was for us. We acknowledge there is a point at which we are not saved. We are still under the wrath of God, Romans chapter 1. And then there is a point at which we are saved, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. To affirm the fact that salvation is experienced instantaneously by a sinner 
when he has faith, when God has acted sovereignly and definitively and directly. So this morning, you're either saved or you're not saved. You're either in Christ or you are not in Christ. There is no neutrality. But there does exist stages or aspects of salvation. And let me explain to you what I mean by that. For example, the Bible teaches that all salvation begins in eternity past, right? God has chosen who he will save in eternity past. But an elect soul that is born in this world, even an elect soul born in this world, is still under condemnation because he bears the image of Adam. He has a sinful nature and is rightfully subject to God's wrath. We would say that his election only manifests itself after his regeneration, after his new birth. And further still, the evidence of new birth is seen in sanctification. That is the pursuit of that individual to live a holy life. And the evidence of glorification, our final glorification, is seen in that pursuit of sanctification. So the interlocked and successive stages of salvation can be distinguished, but they can never be separated. None of the aspects of salvation, election, justification, regeneration, adoption, justification, sanctification, glorification, can exist without the others. They are a golden chain of God's redemption. That is so much true that Jesus put all of those aspects of salvation together. He said this, all that the Father gives me will come to me. That is election. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That is faith in Christ, regeneration. He goes on to say, for I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. There's election again, but raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I will raise them up on the last day. That is glorification. These various aspects of divine salvation are woven into a seamless tapestry of God's sovereign work of redemption. And this doctrinal affirmation of these different aspects or stages of salvation is extremely practical because it's reassuring to the Christian. And the fact that regeneration gives evidence to election. Just as sanctification gives evidence of justification, just as sanctification points forward to the hope of glorification. There can never exist glorification without sanctification. There can never exist sanctification without justification. There can never exist justification without regeneration, and regeneration can't exist apart from election. They all go together. This is why it's extremely important to get our doctrine right. Otherwise, We'll either have no assurance as true believers or we will have false assurance as false believers. So, Paul writes to provide assurance to true believers in Romans chapter 8. Look at the end of it with me in verse 38, what he says. He says, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How can he say that? He can say that because of what he knows to be true. Verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice how he skips over sanctification there because it's assumed if someone is justified, they will be glorified. And if that's going to happen, then in between, they will be sanctified. They will pursue a holy life. From beginning to end, therefore, God's sovereign work of redemption has not only been accomplished, Paul is saying, but it will be applied to every last one of his chosen redeemed. It is God's sovereign determination to save you in the past And your experience of that salvation in the present will then give way to your future salvation in eternity future. Because Jesus said, I will build the church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. There was a famous preacher of yesterday who I became very familiar with when I was a teenager. I used to go into the library of our church and pull his commentaries down to prepare sermons that I would preach. His name was H.A. Ironside, famous 
preacher. And in his study of Ephesians, he told a story that illustrates what I'm trying to convey to you this morning, and I think ultimately what Paul is conveying. Ironside was on a train in Southern California on a Saturday when a gypsy, a woman who was a gypsy, got on. She sat right next to Ironside and then asked all the passengers in her section if they would like her to tell them their fortune. Cross my palm with a quarter and I will tell you your past, present, and future. Well, Ironside would have none of this, so he said, are you sure you can do that? And she said, of course I'm sure. Why do you ask? And he said, well, because I'm Scottish and I want to make sure I get my money's worth if I give you a quarter. She said, yeah, I can tell you your past, present, and future. And then Ironside said, well, it's not really necessary for you to tell my fortune because I have it written down in this little book that is in my pocket. And astonished, she looked at him and said, you mean to tell me your fortune is written down in a book? He said, yeah, let me pull it out for you. And before I read to you my fortune, I want you to understand that it is infallible. Let me tell you about my past, present, and future. Here is my past, he said. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He said, that is my past. He then said, let me read to you my present. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace I have been saved. And he raised me up with him and seated me with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He said, there's my present. You've heard my past. You've heard my present. She tried to get away. She said, I've heard enough. I don't want to hear anymore. And he said, oh, wait, I've not told you my future yet. And here's the best part. I won't even charge you for it. He said, let me read to you my future so that in the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He said, there is my past, present, and future. You see, as Christians, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin, and someday we will be saved from the presence of sin. We have a past, present, and future salvation. That is essentially what Paul is conveying here. He's conveying to us our past, present, and future. He is writing to Christians, and he wants to assure us of the sovereign work of God's redemption. So he begins here in the first 17 verses by describing the ministry of the Holy Spirit, as I said last time, captured in four actions, four actions that manifest themselves in the true children of God. You could call this a fourfold ministry of the Spirit. The first part of his ministry is a liberating ministry. We saw this in verses 1 through 4. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. Because, verse 2, the law of the Spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For what God, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh couldn't do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Of course, the righteous requirement of the law was fulfilled in Christ in the sense that he obeyed the law for us. But Paul is saying more than that here. He's saying there's such a freedom, not only from the condemning power of the law, but there is even freedom presently from the law itself in the sense that the law no longer condemns us. The law is no longer a fearful thing for a true Christian and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit gives us a freeing power to not walk according to the flesh. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh couldn't do. He sent His Son He condemned sin in the flesh. And we, as verse 2 says, have been set free in Christ Jesus. That's the first thing the Spirit of God does. He does a ministry or a work of liberation. He frees us from our bondage to sin. Not only from the penalty of sin, but even our bondage of serving sin experientially as a Christian. And that's sort of just the tip of the iceberg because there's a second work of the Spirit The Spirit not only operates on us a liberating work, but He also operates in us a controlling work or ministry. Verses 5 through 8, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, 
For those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. He's speaking about those who are in the flesh and those who are in the Spirit. Those who are in the flesh are unredeemed, unregenerate. Those who are in the Spirit are indwelt by the Spirit of God. They set their mind on the things of the Spirit, not the things of the flesh. There is something controlling them inwardly. That is the Spirit of God controlling their thoughts, their mind, their actions, their words. There is a driving force within the Christian to control the Christian's life. He is no longer marked by the flesh. He is marked by the Spirit. He is no longer marked by the things of the flesh, Galatians 5, the works of the flesh. As we read those last time, he's marked by the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, gentleness, long-suffering, all of those things. Now that's really just the beginning of what Paul says, but this leads to a third ministry of the Holy Spirit or work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's ministry of liberating, verses 1 through 4, led us to the Spirit's ministry of controlling, verses 5 through 8. That now takes us to the Spirit's ministry of indwelling, verses 9 through 14, and this is really what Paul's getting at. Notice your Bibles in verse 9. Paul says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Notice how he switches from the third person singular to the second person plural. He says, you. You could translate that y'all. He's speaking about all of the Romans there. And he's now speaking directly in the second person. He is safely assuming, I think I can say, that most of them are true believers. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. In other words, Your mind is not set on the things of the flesh, as I just described in verses 5 through 8. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, meaning that basically what Jesus said to Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit, John 3, 6. In other words, sinful flesh only produces more sinful flesh. One must be born again. One must be literally born from above, in which case Paul is saying one is a regenerated new creature and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul does, however, leave room for individual self-examination because he goes on to say, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, because as he says at the end of verse 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. To be in the Spirit means the same thing as the Spirit of God dwells in you. So if you have the Spirit of Christ, Paul is saying, then you belong to him. It's a copy of his words from Ephesians 2.22, Your soul is a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. But he uses the word if in there because there are many pretenders. There are those, um, some baptized moral members of the Church of Rome or any church for that matter that need to examine themselves. Are they truly indwelt by the Spirit? Paul would say this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I mean, it really doesn't matter what your position of baptism is. You can't overcome the reality that the church is always full of sheep and goats. It's always full of tares and wheat. And so Paul uses this if language as if to say you need to examine yourselves As he said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13. In fact, later on in Romans chapter 11, verse 17, he speaks about the unbelieving Jewish branches that were cut off as an example and an illustration to the new covenant church that there could be unbelievers in the midst. In fact, in Jude 19, we read that unbelievers are those who cause division. Unbelievers are those who cause divisions. They are worldly people And they are described as those, Jude 19, devoid of the Spirit. Unbelievers can't help but act out in the flesh, causing divisions, because they are of the flesh. They are not indwelt by the Spirit. Paul's point here in verse 9 is that every true believer has the Spirit. And if you have the Spirit, then listen to this, you are spiritual. You are marked by 
spiritual quality. So Paul goes on to say, notice verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. There's the word if again. The if in that phrase, if Christ is in you, is really not conditional, it's causal. In other words, Paul isn't writing to cause doubt in the souls of true believers united to Christ. He wants us to have assurance based on the evidence of the indwelling Holy Spirit that we belong to Him. But at the same time, He doesn't want false believers to have false assurance. His point is, if Christ is in you, then there will be evidence of the life of God. Because as He says, verse 10, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Let me put that to you this way. He means that though it's true that sin causes the body to die, read Romans 5.12, in Adam all die. Read Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Though it's true that sin causes the body to die, it's also true because of the gift of righteousness, namely one's justification, Romans 3, Romans 5. One is also marked by eternal life because the Holy Spirit is the author of life. And if He indwells you, that means that He's regenerated you He's made you a new person. He's made you a new creature. One who is saved, one who is justified, has the perfect righteousness of Christ imputed to them, and so they are marked by the very life of Christ because of the Holy Spirit. Jesus put it this way. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Of course, he's speaking about eternal death there. Never die eternally. So Paul says in verse 10, If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And he goes on to say in verse 11, notice it, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now he's speaking about resurrection. He's saying that the Holy Spirit was the agent of Christ's resurrection. And since believers are united to Christ, as he's already uncovered repeatedly, just as the Spirit lifted Jesus from the dead, so too will he give life to the mortal bodies of those who have life in Christ, life in the Holy Spirit. There will be a resurrection of mortal bodies. It is the Spirit who gives life, Jesus said in John 6, 63, the flesh is of no help. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. It is the spirit who gives life. It is the spirit of God who is the agent of resurrection life, who is the agent of eternal life. This is why the gospel is supernatural. You cannot earn it. It does not come according to the flesh. You operate that way, you will die. The Holy Spirit is a minister of the new covenant. And we are ministers of the new covenant because we are indwelt by the Spirit. We are not of the letter, but of the Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I love what he says. He says, the moment we enter this world and begin to live, we also begin to die. Your first breath is one of the last, he says, that you will ever take. What Paul's saying here as Christians, we are both a dying body and a living spirit all wrapped up into one. And to dust our bodies shall return, but our spirit is marked by life because of the righteousness of Christ. Because He lives, because He was raised, we will too. This is central to the gospel. Go back with me to Romans chapter 5, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's simply saying that for a Christian, our ultimate destiny is not the grave, but glory. Our ultimate destiny is not death, but domination, ruling with Christ. Our ultimate destiny is not eternal hell, but eternal heaven. And I hope you understand that this morning, regardless of the ways in which you might be downtrodden, the ways in which you might be discouraged. I hope that your hope and your faith is not in anything in this world. The greatest possession you have is Christ. It is the Holy Spirit that indwells you and empowers you. He is the down payment 
of your future resurrection. It has been signed, sealed, and delivered. You will be raised to see Christ face to face. Your body will be raised, united together with your spirit. Now, before we move on to the evidence of the indwelling of the Spirit, which is what Paul is speaking about here, he gives the evidence in verses 12 through 14 that the Spirit of God is actually indwelling you. I want to point out to you the Trinitarian flavor of this passage. Notice in verse 9, it refers to the Spirit. This is um, the Spirit of God, he says, dwells in you. The Spirit of God, verse 9, who dwells in you, is called at the end of verse 9, the Spirit of Christ. Paul is saying that... uh, have the Spirit of God is to have the Spirit of Christ, which is to have the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul is not muddling the distinct members of the Trinity. The three persons are eternally distinct in their personhood, but they share the same divine essence and eternal will. They are absolutely inseparable in the redemptive work. What the Father does, He does through the Son. What the Son does, He does through the Spirit, and where each is the others are there also. So the unity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is marked, we could say, first of all, by an ontological oneness, and number two, by an operational oneness. The ontological oneness is who God is in His essence. The operational oneness is what He does in redemption. Let me give you an example of this. In John chapter 14, it says that the Father would send the Spirit. The Father would send the Spirit, indicating the fact they are distinct persons, right? But then we read in John 16 that the Son would send the Spirit. Now, wait a second. Does the Father send the Spirit or does the Son send the Spirit? Is John 14 right or is John 16 right? Well, there's no contradiction because we also read in John 14 the words of Jesus, I will ask the Father and He will give you the Spirit of truth. The Father will send the Spirit, he says in John 14, 26, in my name. So he who raised Jesus from the dead, at the beginning of verse 11, is a reference to the Father. The Father took the initiative in Jesus' resurrection. But the Spirit of him who raised Jesus, the beginning of verse 11, that is a reference to the Holy Spirit. He who raised Christ Jesus is a reference to the Father. And let's not forget John 10. Jesus wasn't passive in his own resurrection. He says, um, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I lay it down and I raise it up. What's the conclusion? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were all involved in the resurrection of Jesus. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all involved in your resurrection. The Father takes the initiative. And he sends the Spirit in the name of the Son, the Son asking the Father to send the Spirit. This reveals the Trinitarian nature of our salvation. All three members working in concert to accomplish our redemption. The same three members that were at work in the resurrection of Christ is at work in the resurrection of us unto life. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were spiritually raised. We were given new life. And at the end of time, our mortal bodies will be raised. Also, one other note, there is no thought of Gnosticism here. When Paul speaks about the dying body and the Christian's living spirit, he's not creating a divide between the body and the spirit because his whole point is that we're going to have a glorified, resurrected body, that the body is like a tent that will be folded up, not discarded, because he has given life to us in salvation. He will, the end of verse 11, give life to our mortal bodies through His Spirit who already dwells within us. This is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But what is the evidence that you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Well, notice verse 12. He says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Notice here how Paul does not browbeat the Roman Christians. In fact, it's interesting here, he tells them that we will put to death the deeds of the body. That's not a command, he just says what's going to happen. He doesn't browbeat these Christians. This is not infused with commands for morally clean living because this isn't about fleshly effort, right? This is about the Spirit-produced effects of someone who is indwelt by the Spirit. They have life. So they don't operate like a dead person. 
They don't operate like someone in the flesh. In fact, Paul is so gentle, isn't he? Notice he calls them brothers. So then brothers, he calls them. He says to his fellow brethren, we, we all, listen, are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Of course, we aren't any longer debtors to sin. Christ paid that debt. But here Paul says, neither are we debtors to the flesh. The flesh is the complex of sinful desires, motives, affections, propensities, words, actions, and thoughts. His point is simple. As a born-again Christian, you owe nothing to the flesh, right? Because the flesh didn't produce life. The Spirit gave you eternal life. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. John 3, 6. The flesh didn't give you life, so you don't owe your life to the flesh. You're not a debtor to the flesh. You're a debtor to live yielded to the Spirit. That is his point. Now, how do you do that? That's another point. Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. How you do it is you put to death the deeds of the body. Let me show you something. Turn back with me to Romans 7 and what Paul says in verse 4. He says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Let me ask you a question. Did you pay the debt of sin you owed? The answer is no, and Paul's clear about that here. You did nothing except you died. You died to the law through the body of Christ. You didn't do anything but die, and you didn't even do that. Jesus did that for you to pay the debt of sin. So let me ask you another question. Do you have anything to do with your salvation? No, you're passive in that. But your sanctification does involve you because Paul explicitly says here in Romans 8, 13, that by the Spirit, you will put to death the deeds of the body. It's a matter of fact. There's no command here. This is the reality of anyone indwelt by the Holy Spirit, anyone who is marked by life. Now, two things need to be said here. First of all, it's not as if salvation is all a work of God and then sanctification is all a work of you. God just leaves you alone. It's entirely up to you. No, he's indwelt us by his Holy Spirit. That's the whole point of this passage. In fact, go read 2 Corinthians 3. It says that we are being transformed. And to the image of God, from one glory to the next, we are being transformed. It's an act of God upon us. But we also are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, right? Philippians chapter 2. And the second thing that I would say is, he uses the word if there in verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He does not want to make true believers doubt their salvation, as I said earlier. But he also doesn't want false believers to have false assurance. So he states it in a conditional way. Why? Because one of two things is true. Either your life this morning is marked by the ways of the flesh, in which case Paul says you will die, physical and eternal death. Or your life is marked by the ways of the Spirit, in which case you will live and you will prove that you're alive because you will put to death actively the deeds of the body. In other words, there's no middle way. There are no alternative routes in the GPS system. It's black and white. There are two types of people. There are two destinations, and there are only two routes, the way of life and the way of death. And you're one, you're on one of those two routes. So in one sense, there's no use fretting about which path you're on. You say, well, we should examine ourselves. Yeah, you should examine yourself, but there's no sense fretting about which path you're on. There's no sense fretting about whether or not you're saved or not saved. Because all you have to do is look at your own life and calculate the data. Look at the empirical evidence. That's what Paul is saying. If you're a Christian, you will live by the Spirit and put to death the deeds of the body. If you're of the flesh, you're going to live according to the flesh and you're going to die. A person who is truly indwelt by the Spirit of life will produce the fruit of life. Galatians chapter 5. A person still in the flesh may produce a semblance of morality and religion. But when you bite into their fruit, it's rotten. So this comes down to a matter of a taste test. A taste test. Do you pass the taste test? Let me put it to you, I think, the way Paul would. If you were to walk into Paul's office and you were to say, Pastor Paul, I'm doubting my salvation, he would ask you this question. Do you put to death the deeds of the body? That's what verse 13 is saying, right? 
For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You're proving that you have life when you put to death the deeds of the body. And then he says in verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If you're indwelt by the Spirit of God, you're led by the Spirit of God. You don't walk according to the flesh. You don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul's saying, be your own fruit inspector. The inner dwelling of the Spirit will manifest itself in the outer demonstration of fruit. Let me repeat that again. The inner dwelling of the Spirit will manifest itself in the outer demonstration of fruit. To have the Spirit, which every true believer does, means that you are spiritual. You produce spiritual fruit. And I should just hasten to say, Paul isn't speaking here at all about some second work or second blessing of the Spirit. This is black and white. Either you have the Spirit or you don't. Either you're a Christian or you're not. There's not levels of Christianity. There's not a second or third or fourth blessing of the Spirit. The Spirit resides in every child of God, proving their identity, verse 14, as the sons of God. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now that is highly doctrinal because it deals with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Let me make this practical for you. Three signs of the Spirit's indwelling based on these verses. You ready? Number one, a true believer will have a hungry pursuit of mortification. A true believer will have a hungry pursuit of mortification and that will prove they're indwelt by the Spirit of God. What do I mean by that? Well, mortification is putting to death the deeds of the body. Verse 13. You say, well, is mortification masochism? No, it's not masochism, punishing the body with pain. You say, is it asceticism? No, it's not asceticism, denying your body of pleasure, i.e. Lent. No, mortification is what Jesus spoke about on a number of different occasions. I'll give it to you in summary form. You don't have to turn there. I'll turn there. Jesus said, for example, calling the crowd to himself, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What is that? That's the execution of yourself. That's the mortification of yourself. That's picking up the cross and going to the place of execution. Jesus uh, spelled that out a little clearer for us in the Sermon on the Mount. He used horrific language. He said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. That is essentially exactly what Paul's saying in Romans 8.13. Put to death the deeds of the body. Deal with sin in extreme measures. No action is too drastic. No price is too high to pay to turn from fleshly thoughts, words, and actions. This is very simple. A non-Christian can simply be determined by what he's not willing to give up. What he's not willing to let go of. And he ends up keeping his body parts and he ends up in hell. A true Christian lets go of everything if necessary because his or her greatest possession is Christ. So Christians take the initiative. They put to death the deeds of the body. This is mortification. They amputate body parts. They look like veteran soldiers limping into battle, fighting sin no matter what it costs them. And so while Jesus and Paul uses this horrific language of mortification because the temptation to sin is real and what we see with our eyes, what we touch with our hands, where we go with our feet. And so Paul would tell the church, make sure your mind's not in the gutter. If you've been raised with Christ and you say you've been raised with him, you say you have life, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Why? For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's enough for a Christian to hear that you've died with Christ, you've been raised. That's enough for a Christian to practice mortification. This extreme slaying of sin. Mortification is explained in terms of our duty. It's experienced in terms of our dying. It's expected in terms of our destiny. Notice the destiny In verse 13, by the Spirit, you will, you could read it that way, put to death the deeds of the body. And if you do that, you will live. That's the destiny of every Christian. They're indwelt by the Spirit of God, and by the Spirit, they put to death the deeds of the body. So how do you know that you're indwelt by the Spirit of God? Are you slaying sin? Are you fighting temptation to sin, or do you just give in? There's a second 
mark of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Not only a hungry pursuit of mortification, but number two, a hungry pursuit of illumination. Turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit leading us, leads us to the Scriptures and illuminates the Scriptures for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Speaking about the gospel, no eye has seen, verse 9, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. That's the blessings of the gospel. Then Paul says in verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Well, that's good news. No one comprehends... The thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Good news, you're indwelt by the Spirit of God. He's your personal research assistant. What does He do? Well, these things, verse 10, God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. The Spirit isn't searching the depths of God to understand God. The Spirit of God is God. The Spirit of God searches the depths of God to illuminate Scripture for you, to help you understand it. But you can't understand it if you're not in it. You can't understand Scripture if you're not in it, in the Word of God. How do you explain two people listening to the same person, and one person says, I have no clue what you said, and the other person is hanging on every word? How do you explain that? One's a Christian, one's not a Christian. One is indwelt by the Spirit. The Spirit of God is illuminating the Word of God. It's searching out the things of God so that the people of God understand it. The person not indwelt by the Spirit doesn't understand it because they're still in darkness. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. They can't understand it. So are you a Christian? Um, are you indwelt by the Spirit? Well, let me ask you, do you love God's Word? First of all, are you in God's Word? And secondly, do you have a growing understanding of God's Word? That is what it means to be led by the Spirit. That's what it means to be a son of God. The Spirit of God illuminates the Scriptures. Because man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, right? That's what Jesus said. There should be in the heart of every true believer a hunger for the illumination of the Scriptures, a desire to understand the Scriptures, and the Lord will answer that request of all of His true children. The psalmist prayed this way. Do you pray this way? Make me to know Your ways, O Lord. Teach me Your paths. Lead me in Your truth and teach me. For You are the God of my salvation, For I wait all the day long. He leads the humble in what is right. He teaches the humble his way. That's the heart of a true Christian. What about Psalm 143, verse 10? Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Help me to understand your ways and apply your truth. Someone truly indwelt by the Spirit of God is yielded to the Spirit of God. They're led by the Spirit of God. They pray for the Spirit of God to open up His truth to them so they can live according to it. This is Jeremiah 31, the law of God being written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit who illuminates and opens Scripture to us, elucidating and crystallizing that which otherwise could not be understood apart from God. I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. No, it's in the Spirit of God leading us. Jesus said, the Spirit of God will guide us into all truth. So how do you know you're indwelt by the Spirit? How do you know you're a Christian? Do you have a hungry pursuit of mortification? Do you have a hungry pursuit of illumination? Here's a third one quickly. Do you have a hungry pursuit of participation? The Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. Acts 2.42 says that they said under the apostles' teaching and doctrine, the breaking of bread and prayers, the sacraments, prayer, the preaching of God's Word. These are the primary means of grace. True Christians don't despise these. False Christians try to find other ways to live the Christian life outside of the primary means of grace. That's why so many churches don't emphasize preaching. They don't emphasize the sacraments. They don't emphasize prayer. That's too antiquated, and it's too boring for them. And when I travel and I'm outside of this pulpit, I am stunned, stunned by what I see and what people call churches. They're not churches. There's no emphasis on the preaching of God's word. The emphasis is small groups. There's no emphasis on the sacraments. They, they don't have it enough to emphasize it. There's, there's barely an emphasis on prayer to the degree that they even pray corporately. But you see, as a true Christian, you participate in these primary means of grace. 
you hang, your life hangs on every Sunday. And your joy is to come together with the people of God, to sit under the primary means of grace. And even children understand this. You might not even understand exactly how all this works. I mean, how in the world can that guy explain God's truth to me and the Spirit of God use it in such a powerful way? How can the bread and the cup minister to me in such an effective way? Listen, you don't have to explain it. You just have to experience it and revel in the joy of being a child of God. True Christians want Christ before them. They want to hear Christ in the preaching of the Word. They want to see Christ in the sacraments. They want to commune with Christ through prayer, and that is enough for them. It's enough for them. That's what they want. This is someone being led by the Spirit. These are the sons of God. But Paul isn't done. He's talking about this fourfold work of the Spirit. We've spoken about the Spirit's ministry of liberating, the Spirit's ministry of controlling, the Spirit's ministry of indwelling and what all that entails. Finally, Paul speaks, number four, about the Spirit's ministry of witnessing in verses 15 through 17. Building on the thought in verse 14 that Christians are sons of God, notice your Bibles, verse 15. He says, for, building on that thought that we're sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You know, my interactions with non-Christians reveals, well, I think that I'm an enigma to them. Do you feel that way? Non-Christians just can't figure you out. How oppressive they think. That poor guy, he needs to get out more. Trusting in the supernatural, I don't see God. What bondage, what slavery? No, the Christian is free. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received the spirit of adoption. As sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Pagans are bound in slavery and fear, aren't they? You see it in their eyes. The anxiety, the stress, the uncertainty. And Paul's saying here, Christians have peace and joy. Why? Because of the witnessing testimony of the Spirit reminding us we've been adopted into the family of God. Just let that sink in for a moment. You have been adopted into the family of God. And really, Paul's not dealing here with the doctrine of adoption. As glorious as that is, he's dealing with the practical experience and assurance of it. We read about adoption in Ephesians 1.5. We read about adoption in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul says, Go out from their midst, be separate from them. Says the Lord, touch no unclean thing, then I'll welcome you. I'll be a father to you. You'll be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. But here Paul's speaking about not so much the doctrine, but the experience of it, isn't he? For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You received the spirit of adoption. You are assured that you are a son of God. How? By the Holy Spirit that indwells you. That's why you can live every day just as you live it. That is why you have hope when others have uncertainty. That is why you have joy when others have fear. It's an amazing concept of adoption. Of course, in Scripture, there are many examples of adoption. You know that Moses was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. His real mother became the wet nurse, but he was adopted. He grew up as a son of the palace. We read in Esther that Mordecai adopted Esther. But different than all of those adoptions was David's adoption of Mephibosheth, this crippled son of Jonathan. He was the only remaining descendant of Saul. David's best friend was Jonathan. But in a day when one's legacy was carried on by one's kids, Saul and grandkids, Saul his grandfather, the grandfather of Mephibosheth, did not deserve to have any sort of legacy of royalty. Saul attempted David's murder on a number of different occasions. And let me just add this, Mephibosheth was crippled in both feet. David had sons of his own. Mephibosheth could absolutely offer nothing meaningful to the kingdom. But not only did David adopt him, he bequeathed to Mephibosheth all the land that had once belonged to his grandfather Saul. And he gave him a place of honor at the king's table in the palace in Jerusalem. You know what the name Mephibosheth means. It means shameful one. You see, this is not the cute Moses floating in the Nile. This is not innocent little Esther needing a male figure in her life like Mordecai. No, this is a cripple. And that's how we should view our condition prior to our adoption. Crippled beggars. Children of one more evil than Saul. Children of the devil himself. Paul says we have this inner testimony of the Spirit that we belong to the family of God. 
that we've been adopted to the family of God and we can cry, Abba, Father? That is amazing. In the Roman world of Paul's day, adopted sons sometimes carried a greater status and privilege than a natural born son. A Roman father had an unbelievable amount of legal authority and if he didn't like the skills that his own son had, he would just go find another son somewhere else that wasn't natural born, adopt that son into his family, favor that son and give a greater inheritance to the adopted son than to the natural son. As Christians, Paul tells us in verse 15, we've been adopted and we have this internal assurance whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is the Aramaic term. It's the informal title. It it could be rendered Daddy or Papa. And Father is Pater, the Greek term. It is amazing to me that we as God's sons have the privilege to cry, Abba, Father. We have the privilege to cry what the only begotten Son of God cried in the Garden of Gethsemane. He cried out, Abba, Father. We have that privilege. In fact, Jesus told us this was okay and proper, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 9, we are to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven. I mean, what exactly is this cry we make? Who do we think that we are? Who died and said, you're a child of God? Well, Christ died and said, you're a child of God. And because Christ said it, we're indwelt by the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit testifies internally and subjectively to that truth so that our only cry is Abba Father we're right to do it it's proper to do it notice verse 16 the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that indeed we are the children of God because Christ said it it's true because the spirit assures us we cling to that the words are ours but the witness is his the cry of the spirit joins with our spirit verse 16 is saying to create a duet of heavenly joy and assurance. And let me say this, this is admittedly and unapologetically the subjective assurance of God's fatherhood and God's love. This is the subjective testimony inwardly, but it is just as sure and certain as the objective evidence of you living an obedient life that gives indication to the fact that you're indwelt by the Spirit. That's what's amazing. You give the objective evidence because you put to death the deeds of the body. But there's this subjective evidence that nobody can take away. Thank God for this internal subjective testimony because sometimes that's all we have, right? When we do things, say things, act out in ways that don't correspond to the way a true Christian should, we repent of that. We need the comfort of the Holy Spirit to assure us we are the children of God. Don't you think this is why the psalmist prayed, please don't allow your spirit to depart from me? God, may your spirit assure me that I'm still one of yours in spite of my sin, in spite of my inconsistency. This assurance comes most pronounced in prayer. That's when we cry, Abba, Father, right? Flip with me to Ephesians chapter 1 just for a moment. Ephesians chapter 1. What did Paul pray for when he prayed for the church? Verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. What does he pray? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Paul prayed that we might know, that we might have assurance that we're children of God, that we've received all of the blessings that come to us. When do we cry, Abba, Father? Well, we cry it in worship, don't we? Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That is worship, that is prayer, In fact, the Lord's Prayer, which is really the disciples' prayer, is not so much an individual prayer, it's a corporate prayer. Our Father. Our Father. We belong to God. Again, this is what makes the primary means of grace so significant. Worship is a corporate cry to Abba Father. It is an acknowledgement. It is a recognition that we are part of God's family, that we have been adopted 
as one of His children. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. An internal testimony. How else do you explain boldness and courage among Christians? The Spirit of God assures them of their true identity. Willing to give up anything for this God who adopted them. And this makes suffering, by the way, tolerable. Notice verse 17. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Notice this, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. We suffer with Him because we know we're going to be glorified with Him. We know that we are children of God, adopted sons of God. We are children. We are heirs. We are heirs of God. We are fellow heirs with Christ. Is this not the beauty of our union with Christ? We are heirs of God. I mean, we're sort of like the Levites. They weren't given an allotment of land. Their portion was God. We are heirs of God. God is our portion. Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Lamentations 3.24, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. We await that day when God will be all in all, when God will be everything to everyone. Jesus prayed that way, and that prayer is already being answered, that we are one with God. We are in God. The high priestly prayer of Christ, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The love with which you have loved me may be in them. That was Christ's prayer, that there would be this inner, inner Trinitarian fellowship and love and oneness. Not that we become little gods, we are not deified, but we are so intrinsically and intimately united to God that we share the love of the Trinity. And that's why you know you're a child of God. There may be times when you doubt that, but you'll always know because of the internal testimony of the Spirit that we are sons and daughters of Abraham, sons and daughters of God. In Revelation chapter 21, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That's heaven. You want to know what heaven is like? It's the dwelling place of God. It is more than just the taste of what you have now with the internal witness and testimony of the Spirit that you're a child of God. You're an heir of God. You're a fellow heir with Christ. As verse 17 says, that means you receive everything that Christ receives. He received glory as a reward for your redemption. And because you're united with Him, you will share with Him in that glory in the dwelling place of God. This is why all the books about heaven that are written, which the authors know nothing about heaven because they've never been there, are also superficial. What is better than inner Trinitarian fellowship and peace with God? Being an heir of God, a fellow heir with Christ, receiving everything that Christ received upon his ascension, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and will never fade away. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has a liberating ministry to free you from the life you used to live. The Holy Spirit has a controlling ministry. He's written the law of God upon your heart. You don't walk according to the flesh. You walk according to the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has a ministry which empowers you because of His indwelling. And the Holy Spirit has a witnessing ministry. When you don't feel like a Christian, the Holy Spirit whispers, you're still a Christian. You've been adopted into the family of God, which is a reminder you don't belong there, but you do belong there now because of what Christ has done. 
Salvation you didn't deserve. Salvation you didn't earn. Salvation you can't keep. God has to keep you there. And the Spirit assures us of that. So where is the Holy Spirit most pronounced? Well, it is most pronounced when you hear the Word of God. When you hear the promises of God's Word. The Holy Spirit is most active when you see the sacraments and you're reminded of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The Holy Spirit is most active when you actually spend time in prayer with God. So the assurance of the believer is all tied to the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's why, folks, it typically is pretty easy to tell who is a Christian and who is not a Christian. We are of a different order and a different variety. We are aliens. We are strangers. We are indwelt by a supernatural power. And although there are times we do things we don't want to do, the trajectory of our life is such that we love the Word of God, we understand the Word of God, we seek to apply the Word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, and even when we do that inconsistency, inconsistently, we have the testimony and the witness of the Holy Spirit that says it's not up to you anyway. You are an adopted child of God, a fellow heir with Christ. Without the Spirit, it's impossible to live the Christian life. Without the Spirit, it's impossible to have assurance. Without the Spirit of God, it's impossible to be a saved child of God. So thank the Lord for the ministry of the Spirit. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.ChristReformedCC.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.